Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacey Elliott. And this is GM from Decrypt. Right, GM Stacy, and it's time to bring on another crypto lawyer. <laughs> GM Dan, more lawyers. <laughs> they always have a lot of insight because, like, it's it's almost to the extent where sometimes when we're talking to certain guests, I feel bad that we mention the regulatory and legal landscape as much as we do, but I also don't feel bad because it it's still it seems to me is the biggest or one of the two biggest topics for everyone in this industry. And so the lawyers always have a lot to say about it. And so that's really valuable and important. Like what is going to happen when it comes to dealing with financial rules and regulations in and outside of the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, it's all so in flux that I mean, we can't even agree on what any of the regulatory or legal precedents should be in the crypto industry. Like at, we've talked to Paul Griol from Coinbase and he said, we've got legal precedents. The older they right. are, the better. And I all like right, them yeah. when they're a few yeah. centuries old. But you talk to most other people and they're like, nope, we have no idea what we're supposed to be doing. There's no precedents that apply to crypto. We need all new rules. And so yeah, it's it's always interesting talking to lawyers. They all want to point to different things that they think are relevant. But, you know, the fact remains like no, no one really knows. We don't have clarity yet. Nope. And so talking to the folks who really know the law well is is so kind of illuminating for us. Yeah, 100%. Uh, today's is Marco Santori, uh, chief legal officer at Kraken. And so what's also great about that is uh, we have stuff that just happened to talk about, and that is that Kraken was slapped with a $30 million fine by the SEC and shut down all staking in the US. And of course, now we're already in like the second or third era of the SEC's uh, areas that it is going after. So there was like the ICOs, where basically we think every token sale looks to us like an unregistered securities offering. Then it was, um, well, I guess more of the same, but it became like celebrities pumping tokens and also exchanges listing tokens that we've deemed securities. But now the SEC is making clear that we also think staking is in itself a secure, well, I guess you could also add lending. There was a little era of going after crypto lenders. Mm-hmm. Um, if it looks like a security to them, you're going to hear from them. And what's interesting with Kraken is they said, okay, we'll shut down staking in the US. Uh, Coinbase similarly shut down its planned lend product when the SEC threatened What Coinbase hasn't done is say, we're going to shut down staking. And it seems to me that they're going to kind of plant a flag and and fight that out if the SEC says, you know, shut down staking or else. Um, Point being, lots of fodder to ask Marco about, and he's been in the hot seat on this stuff. Yeah, I mean, there was a little bit of worry, I think, back when Gensler made a comment that everyone took to mean that like he might be going after ETH staking after the merge, because he he said once the network went through its upgrade, well, a proof of stake token looks a little bit more like a security to me. And then it wasn't clear whether anything was going to happen off the back of that. But, you know, little did we know, I'm sure by that point they were already, you know, talking with and figuring out settlement terms with Kraken. And then, you know, eventually we did hear about the settlement. But yeah, it's it's really interesting. And even people we've talked to outside of the U.S. have been kind of surprised to see how hard the SEC is coming down on staking. So, yeah, I think there's just a lot to talk about with Marco. I'm excited to bring him on. Let's do it. Marco Santori, we'll bring him on now. Okay, Marco Santori from Kraken GM. Thanks for joining us. Dan Roberts, great to be here. We have looked forward to having you on. Stacey and I love having the lawyers come on and talk because there is a lot of fodder to discuss in this industry. Uh, let's just start with recent Kraken news. Obviously, we covered very closely what happened with the SEC and shutting down staking. And that was in February. I guess I'd ask, like, 
Has the dust settled from that for you guys? Where do things stand? Do you sort of consider that situation resolved? And of course, the big question is like, moving forward, what do you see happening with staking in the US? Is everyone going to have to go this route? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, we resolved our outstanding investigation with the SEC uh, on staking, um, gosh, just uh, two and a half years ago. How long was it? It feels like, it feels like, it feels like forever. So much has happened since then. Um, but after, uh, after we entered into the settlement, um, you know, we wanted to move forward, I think, just, just like the SEC wants, uh, wants to move forward uh, and move on. So, um, yeah, we view the dust as having settled. We view, um, we view uh, the matter as resolved, as, as, as the judge ordered it to be resolved. Um, I think staking in the U.S. more broadly uh, still, has a, still has a bright future. Yes, there are aggressive regulators um, trying to do their worst, but at the end of the day, right, we're still in this period where there is no law on the matter. There's not a, there's not a single bit of law on, on staking that exists in the U.S. So in that environment, what do lawyers do? What do smart policymakers do? They'll go back to first principles. They look at the risks. What are really the risks that are involved in, in staking? And they are not the same kind of risks that are involved uh, with investments in securities. They are two different worlds. There is no reason to think that there ought to be a steady state regime in the U.S. where only rich people are allowed to stake, uh, just like only rich people are allowed to uh, buy restricted stock, right? I don't think that is the correct policy outcome, um, and neither is the policy outcome where staking is essentially wiped out because any staking product has to be registered with the SEC. I don't think that's the right policy outcome either because those kinds of registrations wouldn't control for the kinds of risks um, that exist in staking. They're just too different from the kinds of risks that are involved in investing in a in an ongoing uh, operating company. So I want to ask about, and this is not so much about, we're not going to get policy answers, I don't think, in the next couple of weeks. But what is going to happen in the, you know, the next 24 hours, basically, at least for the time we're recording, is that the Shanghai and Capella upgrades are going to hit the Ethereum network, and it's going to become possible, assuming everything goes as planned, that people can now withdraw their ETH. But we know also that this is going to take a while and it's really not up to you or any other centralized staking entity or, you know, exchange to figure out when that ETH is actually going to be available to people who've staked through pooled services. So um, can you give us a little insight into how you guys are, are managing that or what you're expecting to see from that? And, you know, keep in mind, this will come out, I think, probably in about two weeks. But, you know, we're on the eve of it now. What are things looking like for Kraken? Um, so you'll have to ask uh, the product people and the engineers about how the how this how 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 the step by step is going to go. Here in the U.S., obviously, we haven't been able to un unstake ETH, um, and you know it's not possible. Uh, once unstaking becomes possible, and once once the ETH is unstaked, we'll return it to users and go along our merry way. Obviously, um, outside of the U.S., staking users are entirely unaffected. By this as 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 they should be uh the the united states and and particularly the sec or not the world police uh so the jurisdiction is limited in that uh, in that regard so does that mean u.s customers who've got eth staked with kraken right now once it's possible to withdraw that eth they'll have to like they won't have the option to just keep it staked with you guys um no, I mean, I it, not 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 in not in the U.S. Okay. The um, the the settlement was pretty clear on that point, mm -hmm. and like we said, you know, we we want to put that affair behind us. Um, so no, we won't be offering staking in the U.S. Um, for 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 ether. It's it's interesting. I mean, we're we're talking a lot about sort of U.S. versus non-U.S. We probably focus too much on that. But, it, you know, I think it's become a story for everyone in crypto, even regardless of where they're based, to watch what has happened in the U.S. Uh, because I think a lot of people have the fear, and lately it's, I mean, it's definitely happening in some cases, that the kind of restrictive approach the U.S. is taking overall, yes, there are some exceptions, there are some advocates, 
you know, in DC, but for the most part, pretty restrictive, um, is pushing companies out. And that's a shame, right? I mean, you know, we talk to an increasingly DeFi projects that say, yep, and we operate everywhere but the US. You say, oh, you know, that's, that's a shame. Do you see that changing? What would need to happen for that to change? Um, you know, well, I think it depends on the, on the kind of product, like DeFi probably has a different future than secondary markets, uh, like uh, spot markets, I guess. Um, but you know, the overall point is a really, is a really important one. Are, are our policies here in the U S pushing, um, innovators and entrepreneurs offshore? It's an objection that. Innovators and entrepreneurs have raised to lit to regulation since time immemorial. Since the beginning of regulation, the response has always been, if you regulate too hard, I'm going to pick up my toys and leave and innovate somewhere else. And that objection has never been taken seriously. It has, it has never been taken seriously. I think um, it's different for crypto. I think it's different for crypto. I think it's different for crypto policy writ large. Contrast crypto policy, cri contrast crypto ecosystems where innovators and users can opt out because they aren't constrained by borders, because they aren't constrained by closed systems. Contrast that world, this, this world in which we live um, as parts of the crypto ecosystem with the world of traditional finance, where there really is no out. Geographic borders um, constrain users, they constrain operators, and they constrain fiat currency. Your money never leaves the United States except in cash and uh, except in paper and metal form, right? Your, your money is, is stuck. Your, your, your fiat currency is stuck in the U.S. banking system. That's a very different world than crypto where the U.S. banking system doesn't constrain where you can move your money and the geographic boundaries of crypto don't constrain where you can innovate. All of the all of those effects that kept entrepreneurs in the U.S. in the traditional world of fiat currencies aren't operating in the world of crypto. And so the tighter regulators squeeze and the tighter policymakers squeeze around uh, innovators and entrepreneurs, um, the more slips through their grasp. Uh, it, is, it is much less compressible than, um, than the world of traditional, uh, of traditional currencies and traditional financial markets where um, businesses, users mostly have nowhere to go. Um, so I think policymakers, regulators should be taking uh, this objection seriously this time around, if not because of that theoretical point I just made, than the statistical point that we've seen bouncing around the press recently that surveys are showing that we are in fact losing entrepreneurs. We lost um, quite a bit of intellectual capital in, um, in 2018 and 2019. Some of the smartest minds of our generation, um, of our, you know, our technological generation are just picking up and moving off to Portugal uh, and elsewhere. Yeah, and, and just as a quick follow-up, if the you're right, at least in the past, if the carrot of, you know, I'm going to go and build somewhere else hasn't been much of a motivator, a, a related threat has been like, if you crimp down on this new thing too much, um, the U.S. will lose to other countries. And in the past, that's been a, a competitive motivator. Like, you know, when people talk about CBDCs, which I don't know that people in crypto think that anyone actually needs those, but now China actually like did it and they have one and people are using it. Now, of course, very hard to compare, very different culture because they say, use it and you have to, but it's the digital yuan, it's there. And for a while, um, that was sort of used as the threat in the US was we're going to miss out and we're going to lose in this, in this specific tech race to other countries. Now, like that's happening. Could that be a better motivator for lawmakers and politicians? Like, look, over in Europe, you know, they're getting all of the innovation in this industry and you're blowing it. Yeah, it should be, right? Uh, but we live in a multipolar world now. There's very little us, um, us versus them. And even here in the U.S., opponents to the China-style um, digital renminbi um, or the China-style 
CBDC, whatever you want to call it, even opponents to that will disagree how, how to best fight it, how to best work against it. There are those who say we can, the best way to do that is a strong digital dollar issued by the Fed, uh, the only controls over which would be political controls. And then there are those who think differently. They think, look, the private sector is really the best place for this, uh, for, 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 for us to develop our best weapon against that, um, against that threat. We should do it via capitalism. We should encourage people, um, we should encourage people to, to build that. And we should do it here. We want the next you know, Raytheon of, uh, of monetary value to be birthed here, not in Berlin. Um, I'm in that camp. <laughs> I'm in that camp. I think that, um, I think that the private sector can do it better than the public sector. And I think it can do it in a way that's more, uh, beholden to the citizenry, uh, and to the American people than the government can. I want to ask about, you know, you've been doing the, the lobbying and talking to regulators for a, a long time, or at least what's a long time in crypto. Um, you know, like I was doing you, some can research. You, and I can said, you see the gray? <laughs> yeah. Is that crypto induced? Yeah, it's from here. Um, yeah. But I, I asked because, you know, I was chatting with Dan before we started recording today and I realized you either at least are from Jersey or practiced in Jersey because you, there's a video on the Internet of you speaking to the New Jersey State Assembly about digital currencies in 2015. And just to kind of set the scene, you know, at the time, as far as I understand it, you were working for blockchain when it was blockchain.info. And you were also over at the Blockchain Foundation. So, you know, very different time from now. But you've been talking to regulators for a while. And how have those conversations changed? Or maybe the even better question is, how have they stayed the same? Because it, it doesn't feel like we're making a ton of progress with how, you know, regulators want to interact with or reckon with the industry. I, I actually think it's changed dramatically. But, um, you know, this is the kind of thing that I will nerd out on and it, and the kind of thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, the conversation used to be about, um, it used to be about money laundering and um, it used to be about um, consumer protection. Now, yeah, there's still elements of money laundering and consumer protection going on, but if we're being honest with each other, that's not in the spotlight anymore, is it? What we're really talking about now is, frankly, much bigger and, and potentially more important matters um, like uh, investor protection, for one. Um, for two, well, systemic risk. Can, systemic risk? I mean, Crazy people were talking about Bitcoin causing systemic risk back in 2012 when I got involved. Crazy people. At least we all thought they were crazy. I thought I was quite sane, thinking they were crazy. Turns out I was wrong. Turns out I was wrong and most people watching were wrong because now we're talking about systemic risk. We started talking about systemic risk in crypto when Libra came along, Facebook's DM, um, came along and shook the policy table. We always like to joke that everything was going just fine, peachy keen, until Facebook came along and said, we're going to control all the world's currencies, wrap them up in a basket uh, and ship them off uh, to people based on whatever we think is appropriate, not you, central banks. That didn't go very far. Central banks shut it down. Um, but now systemic risk is in the spotlight. And it's in the spotlight, um, particularly today with regard to the U.S. banking system, right? Uh, some of the flavor of the SVB shutdown and the Signature Bank shutdown um, had to do with systemic risk induced by uh, the crypto industry. Now, we can all argue about the extent to which that's true or false, um, but wasn't nobody talking about that 10 years ago? I mean, come on. Crypto had tiny. There was no crypto, right? It was Bitcoin and alts. Mm -hmm. There was no crypto. Crypto still meant st still meant cryptography then. So yeah, I mean, we're I talking. I think some to... people would still say it's Bitcoin and alts, but that's that's, <laughs> that's, that's right. another conversation in time. That's fair. That's a yeah. fair point. That's a fair point. 
Um, so what other big picture things are we thinking about now? Uh, we talked about the shift from um, consumer protection to investor protection, but now we're talking about federalism, right? We have a, we have a, um, a state bank charter that um, it's no secret was aimed toward um, opening up the banking system to, uh, to crypto companies. And there was um, an immediate sort of immune system response from the federal government to uh, limit that. We saw the Fed reject Custodia's master account application. Kraken's master account application uh, has not yet been rejected. Um, but um, the, the Fed it not only rejected their application, but immediately put in place um, guidance, or at least opened up to notice and comment and then adopted and substantially the original form guidance on how it would evaluate these, mm -hmm. these crazy special purpose limited banking charters being offered up by the states. And the guidance was pretty straightforward. If you weren't following the story, it was very long, but at bottom it said one thing. If you're not, federal, if you're not federally regulated, you probably shouldn't be involved in the banking system. So now crypto has brought that to the forefront. Mm -hmm. uh, it never really was at the forefront. And my, going back to my testimony in New Jersey, I, I've actually never been a New Jersey resident. I've never worked in New Jersey. I've never been barred in New Jersey. Um, but you know, what were we talking about in New Jersey? Uh, well, gosh, money laundering, money transmission, these, uh, these, these things that seem almost quaint compared to these huge global issues. Well, it's funny. It's like we just had Arthur Hayes on uh, the episode before you, and uh, we didn't actually get into this with him, but you know, they went after him for basically like run-of-the-mill AML and KYC-related stuff. And now you look at you know what they're trying to charge or threaten lawsuits over, and it's totally different. Um, it's not. It's it's gone beyond that. So it is kind of ironic. Like he was the original. Um, I don't know crypto bad boy or you know, guy who they went after. And now it's like, that's what they're upset about. Um, but I have to ask further, Marco, about what you said about Facebook, because that was really interesting. I mean, God, in, in crypto years, that feels like an eternity ago, even though it wasn't like the Libra to DM stuff. But that's, um, you know, you were saying you guys kind of joke about it internally, but do, do you really think that, you know, Facebook trying to do what it did bears a lot of the blame for like raising lawmakers awareness and kind of inadvertently sounding the alarm about stuff without a doubt without a doubt um the so many more people with the power to destroy took notice of crypto because of libra and you can see it most apparent in uh stablecoin regulation and the discussion around stablecoin regulation, the, the, the proposed stablecoin regulations. Um, you can see it in um, the discussion around banking that we had just, that we were just talking about. Um, there is no question that Libra back in 2019, 20, late 2018, um, really shook the table and shook quite a few people at that table awake. At the same time, there's some really positive outcomes from that whole experience. Um, we largely have uh, that, have, have Libra and Diem to thank for Mika, Mika, the markets and cryptocurrency asset regulation in Europe, which um, so far looks a whole lot better than what's going on in the US. And certainly it's important for Kraken. Europe is uh, a very large market um, for us. And so we, you know, we're encouraged by, by, what's, happened, uh, by what's happening there. Uh, never say never, the Europeans take an iterative approach to regulation and it could go, could go south quickly. But so far it seems balanced, it seems reasonable. Um, and it seems a whole lot better than what we have going on in the US. Um, and really, that's mostly thanks to thanks to Facebook, thanks to Libra, thanks to Diem, uh, that these regulators and policymakers um, took notice and were spurred to action. Wow. Thank you, Zuck. And thank you, David Marcus. Huh? 
I want to pivot and not by much um, to talk a little more specifically about stable coins. Um, Cause I saw you did an interview last year where you were talking, I think it was at Bitcoin Miami about stable coins at the time, like in the U S they were coming from money transmitters and you kind of likened the way that they're viewed or at least regulated the same as like PayPal and Venmo. But like, as you well know, we all know, you said that right before Terra blew up. And of course, like, you know, like the eye of Sauron turned upon stable coins <laughs> as far as DC was concerned. Um, so do you still see a path forward for stable coins? Like, is there is there still a way for them to be viable and be based or issued by U.S. entities, do you think? There certainly is today. Right. They're here. They're not illegal. Um, at least there's no regulator that's come out and said uh, publicly that they believe they would have a case against um, the large U.S. Uh, dollar-backed coins. So that's where we are today. Tomorrow, if you ask me where where that's going, um, I think it is a it is highly dependent on the political on the political churn. Um, Stable coins are still pretty small in the grand scheme of things. You see, you know, you saw that in the in the in the Treasury's recent report. They talked about DeFi there too, all relatively small in the grand scheme of things. Uh, if we get uh, if 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 there's any movement uh, in Congress on this issue, we could get pretty permissive stablecoin regulation at at the at the federal level. Um, but I view it as a highly political process. It's not, it's not one of those processes where you can look at policy goals or risks to consumers and say in black and white, oh, this is good and this is bad. In my view, it's, it's, it's largely political strategy that, that, that will determine this. You contrast that right, with, with my view on staking, where from a policy perspective, there's just like immense, like robust discussion to have. It's different around stable coins. It's different around stable coins. That's politics. We'll be right back after this. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It kind of feels like just the, just in defining what a stable coin is, seems to kind of get the hackles up of some politicians who's like, oh, you're pegging your funny internet money to our dollar. <laughs> like, And they kind of come in swinging, or at least it has seemed that way. Um, you know, what stable coins have been around for a while. Like how much has the, the discourse around them changed, do you think? And what's going to turn it back to, okay, we're okay with these things existing. Cause right now it, it just seems like everyone's racing to kind of get a, a bill out. That's going to, somehow greatly hamper if not completely eradicate them and, and and as one more data point it didn't help too in my opinion when usdc tanked to 87 cents recently right. uh, granted then it came back two days later but it just reminded people like even the one or the number two one that everyone trusted like even that doesn't stay always at at a dollar like it should yeah can maybe i can i can like refocus the discussion to algorithmic coins i i Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, but I still view al algorithmically pegged stable coins as viable. Um, I don't think they're perpetual motion machines. Um, I think that the ecosystem is just too small. I think that, and and I I I, I would love to receive hate mail on this, by the way, because I want to learn more about it. Um, and you can always hit me up on Twitter uh, and just like publicly blow me up about how ignorant I am on this topic. But I think that what you really need for algorithmically pegged stable coins is uh, digital assets that have sufficiently differentiated supply and demand curves. You can do, I think you can do algorithmically pegged stable coins outside of the banking system, which is where all of this is politicized. And I think that is the savior 
and it, it, it will be the savior of asset-backed stable coins that have a connection to the banking system. I think that asset-backed stable coins um, will look uh, safe and easy to understand and easy to regulate compared to algorithmically uh, pegged coins. Um, I think the development of algorithmically pegged coins is critical to the development of stable coins because it's going to be something that regulators and policymakers can actually get behind and control. Um, they're not going to look like what they look like today. There probably, will probably be additional controls put in place. Um, but that's, I think that's, that's the great savior of these things is a, is an alternative that seems a whole lot worse to those who would seek to control it. Is there anybody who's issued an algorithmic stable coin so far that, that you like that's out now, or do you think we're, we're still waiting to see that happen? Yeah. The answer is yes. I won't say which one we don't, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about winners and losers. We run a neutral, you know, uh, a neutral market here, but I think there, there are those that are doing it better than others, but I still think that, um, that this ideal, uh, this ideal program is out there. It is out there somewhere and it's, maybe it's out there waiting to be discovered, but I think it can be done. And I think it can be done without resort to lawyers to enforce claims against a real world asset. I think it can be done without banks holding the real world asset um, and money transmitters and regulators. I think, I, I, I think it can be done and I think it has to be done. Um, and when it is, it'll be that great compliment to Bitcoin that not even Ether has been able to be. Some of it is probably, it's, it's almost like a marketing issue where it's, it's hard to get certain things taken seriously by people who for now have still decided like they think all of crypto is stupid. Um, you know, it's, it's like, it, it's already hard enough as it is to try to explain to skeptics, here's why this stuff is real and legitimate and is here to stay. It's been 13 years. No, it's not all going to collapse and go to zero tomorrow. But then once you get past that hurdle, you have to say, when it comes to an algorithmic stable coin, well, the price of this asset should in theory remain fixed and stable and reliable because it's pegged to this other crypto asset. And of course, you know, when, when Terra melted down, people were able to point to it and say, and both were just made up. And it's like, well, yeah, but I mean, everything was made up at some point. It didn't exist and then it existed and it gains trust. But, you know, that's a hard sell, I think, for a lot of people. And I can see why it's easier to say this other thing, whether it's Terra, USDC, whichever one you choose, it has the amount in reserves that it always says it has in circulation in actual bank accounts. And then the skeptics can go, oh, good, in bank accounts. Okay. But if you're saying it's pegged to this other thing that's also crypto, you know. Yeah. Um, I hear you. And that's the but and that's the phenomenon, right? That I that I think is actually going to save the asset-backed stable coins. Right? That's what that's that's what's going to legitimize those and give grounds to those who would who would pass laws that are commercially viable and can create like, you know, real honest to goodness um, value for people. So I want to jump back to what you said about Custodia and the Fedmaster account, because you, you did mention that, and it is true, your a Kraken's application for a Fedmaster account has not been uh, denied. Um, Kraken cannot say the same, or sorry, Custodia cannot say the same. Um, so I guess, talk to me about how you see that as a road that Kraken might still want to pursue. I, you've not sued the SEC or the Fed quite like the uh, Custodia has. Um, but, you know, is that something Kraken's still interested in? Sure, you've got the application pending, but would you still want the master account? Yes, we would. Yes, we would. Um, and I think the need for that is more apparent today for Americans than it has been for a hundred years. Um, fractional reserve banking caused this crisis along with other things, right? It, it's very rarely uh, just, just one cause to big national crises like this, but we are in the midst of a banking crisis that we would not be in the midst of if there was 
just a couple of full reserve banks, essentially vaults people could put their money in. Now, should all banks be full reserve? Some people think so. I don't. I don't. I, 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 I don't believe in a prohibition on fractional reserve banking. I don't believe it's evil. I don't believe it's the cause of all the world ills. In fact, I think we have fractional reserve banking to thank for unlocking a tremendous amount of value and eliminating a huge amount of inefficiency um, in, in the banking sector. Um, but gosh, wouldn't you love to just put your money somewhere that you knew it was going to be when you went back to get it again? Wouldn't that be great? I mean, wouldn't it be great to now, 10 years ago, you didn't, maybe 10 years ago you did, but you know, a year ago, you didn't think that your money wouldn't be safe in a bank today. We know it's not safe in a bank because all of the banks today are fractional reserve banks in the United States. Makes sense to just have maybe a couple that aren't. The, the the bizarre objection that we've gotten to that is that that would actual that full reserve banking would somehow cause systemic risk to the banking system. I'm baffled by that. You can read the Bank Policy Institute's arguments for this. They're nonsense. They're gobbledygook. They don't make any sense to anybody who knows anything about banking, but they make a lot of sense to people who know a lot about politics. Because those who object to full reserve banking are fractional reserve banks. Why would they want the competition? They don't care what, what's good for the consumer. They don't care what's good for their account holder. They care about keeping competition out of the system. And so far, they have been successful at that. I want to jump right back to Caitlin Long and Custodia real quick. Um, how collegial are things between Custodia and Kraken? Because Right now, they're the ones out there who are fighting this fight that filed the lawsuit. Unless I, I unless I've missed it, I don't think Kraken has really gotten involved or commented much on it. So, you guys might wind up benefiting from some of the work she's doing. But I'm curious to know if there's been any, you know, communication, collaborate, anything going on behind the scenes that we haven't seen. Um, we have a good relationship uh, with Custodia. We're fellow travelers on this road. It's hard to imagine how an outcome in that case wouldn't affect us. Um, our relate the, the the personal. This is a podcast, right? It's not a New York Times article, that, uh, but it's not a Post article either. Okay, uh, so the, I'll tell you that the um, the the personal relationships are friendly and collegial uh, as well. Um, but no, we haven't joined. We haven't joined in the lawsuit. We don't have our own lawsuit. That's not to say we're not fighting the fight. Kraken does a lot. Kraken does a lot. We do a lot behind the scenes. Um, you don't see us under the spotlight, probably as much um, as you see other companies. Uh, but sometimes that's not the most effective way to get things done. And it's not the most effective way to protect your customers and to do what's right for them. Um, and we try to do right by our customers. And that doesn't always mean tweeting, you know, uh, dunks on, on, on the incumbent banking system. Sometimes we will dunk on the incumbent banking system, but, um, what we do, we usually find, uh, more effective, uh, to be done a little more surgically. Right. I, I don't think it's enviable being the, the tip of the spear. I don't think it's an easy job at all. So yeah, I see your point. That's, uh, yeah, I appreciate that judicious answer. You know, speaking of the incumbent banking system, I wanted to press you on like, when you look at DC right now, whether it's Sherrod Brown, Liz Warren, Gary Gensler, uh, the people who are very vocally and vociferously, I think it's fair to say anti-crypto, even if they'd say, no, it's not that, it's, it's like, come on. Um, what do you think it would take, if ever possible, to make them think differently and change their minds and be more open to all of this tech. I mean, obviously something like FTX was hugely damaging, kind of exacerbated it. But as I've been reminding people in the last couple of months, like all these people were saying these things, you know, before FTX collapse, that just sort of made it, I think, feel more urgent to them to send a signal that they're cracking down. Um, what would have to happen to change uh, the rhetoric? They're not going to change their rhetoric or not. Um, we did a fantastic job of, as an industry, as an industry, we did a fantastic job of, um, addressing, um, 
with some of the midnight rulemaking um, attempt um, at the end of the last administration. Um, we did a, a fantastic job at calling in to the Senate uh, around the el 11th hour of the um, omnibus spending bill um, that addressed um, broker regulations. We've done a lot as an industry and we are going to have to muster that same energy um, and that, 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 that same impact many times in the future. But writing a strongly worded letter to Elizabeth Warren is not going to do it. So uh, crypto ought to be a nonpartisan issue. It very much ought to be. And I think at its heart, it is a nonpartisan issue. But there are just authoritarians in government. At the end of the day, there will always be authoritarians, people who, when confronted with a problem, will choose the solution that uh, that accretes power for themselves. You're not going to change that behavior. So what I would say is that as an industry, as an industry and as an ecosystem, we can do more to uh, more to bring about change um, by empowering those who are who see this, who are not authoritarians, who understand that we want to give people more freedom, not less. Um, and work with them, support them however we can, provide technical support, close, close the knowledge gap, advocate on their behalf, um, crack in when we do our political engagement. We are single-issue uh, voters. We are single-issue voters. We support crypto. We support people um, who uh, are pro-choice, who are uh, pro-life, we support um, advocates who believe uh, that we should have more community reinvestment, uh, people who believe we ought to have less of it, people who think we should end the Fed, um, and people who think um, that um, we just need more and more Wall Street. It's a question of how they support crypto, how they support our ecosystem. We've become single issue uh, single issue voters on this front. And I think that the, that, that the, the trend toward that is inevitable. And it's something that, that if we can do anything, we ought to accelerate. Um, as we sort of start to wind down here, cause we don't have you forever. I wanted to ask you a sort of broad question about being a lawyer in the web three space, because in the big scheme of things, this is all still pretty new. Um, you know, you were early, uh, I've been writing about Bitcoin since 2011. That was early. But still, we're talking about like 13 years. So in the big scheme of things, this is a very new industry that people are still navigating, discovering. And I've noticed uh, all of these like Web3 attorneys cropping up, you know, and some of them even brand themselves that way. They say, I'm the Web3 lawyer. And I just, I wanted to ask you, like, especially when it comes to bleeding edge, you know, whether it's NFTs or suing people using an NFT or you can't use that PFP because I own it. I can prove on chain I own it. And it's like, well, what are you going to do about it? Um, all of this stuff is still being discovered and it feels in some ways like some of the experts like, well, they just discovered it two years ago. So now they're an expert and they're sort of feeling their way as they go. What do you make of um, just trying to keep up with the tech and even figuring out what the legal precedents are? I mean, in many of these things, there is no precedent. I, I love to see it. I love to see the young lawyers who are trying to make a name for themselves catch the wave crypto. Um, I was a financial services litigator before I got into this. So for me, it was a little bit easier. I already had a basic knowledge of some of the fundamentals of it. Um, but even I like I got that from somewhere and they are going to have to get it from somewhere as well. Um, might as well do it here in crypto in practice. I, I absolutely love to see the hustle. Um, some of them are faking it until they can make it. And I actually, you know, so long as they're satisfying their ethical obligations, I, I love to see it because it's even harder to do now than it was back then. Back then, there was one piece of guidance, one piece of precedent 
uh, on crypto, on Bitcoin, um, back when I got started. Um, and that was FinCEN's original guidance on Bitcoin, on, on, on what they called, what they created the term convertible virtual currencies. This is before the SEC decided it wanted a piece of the action and cajoled them all from into using virtual assets so that, you know, there would be intellectual space for the concept of a security. Um, but there was at least something like back then, oh, sorry, I, sh I, sh I should say there was actually very little back then. There was, there was only that one piece of guidance um, that if you could become an expert on that one piece of guidance, you were essentially an expert on crypto writ large. That's not the case anymore, right? We've got a, a litany of enforcement actions from different um, federal regulators. You've got private case law. Um, Kraken has made some case law, uh, it has created some precedent. Um, there's actually quite a bit to get up to speed on now. Um, and I think it's harder. I think it's harder. So all those new lawyers, the, the junior boys and girls who are growing up in this space, um, they're going to get much farther in the next year in terms of their understanding of the law and their appreciation of that great web of precedent than we ever did back in the day. I mean, between 2012 and 2013, nothing happened in crypto law, like nothing. It was just us trying to figure things out. And the 2013, 2014, not a whole lot happened. 2014, 2015, not a whole lot happened. 2016, 2017, we started to see um, the SEC get more involved. And since then, you know, everybody, it's like spawned this whole new generation of securities lawyers. Um, and there, and it's just been an, you know, it's been an, an unrelenting flood since then. So um, God bless them. They're going to have to work harder than we did. I wanted to, to ask about I guess what it's like being at a company that's received a wealth notice. And of course, any financial company is liable to get one of these at some point. Um, but, you know, uh, the crypto industry in particular has had lots of reasons to have to hurry up and get familiar with what they are and how they work recently. So maybe give some of those young and up and coming lawyers kind of like a little insight. What actually happens when you get one? What 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 does the battle plan look like when you you hear one of those is coming down the pipeline? Well, we're client services professionals, right? We are we we engage in in personal services. Yes, they're professional services, but they're also personal services. They're individuals, they're humans that have heartbeats and blood pressures that you are standing next to and in between them and a regulator who, and excuse me and a regulator who wants to end their day. Um, and ended on a bad note. It's really, really reassuring when you can stare down the barrel of something like a Wells notice and say, look, regulators, I hate to break it to you, but this is not the first time somebody has put a Wells notice in front of me. And that's re that is experience that, um, you're, you're actually in, in, you know, you're in luck because that experience comes very quickly after your first Wells notice, right? So you can, if, if you can be in a position to say that you, you, you can put people at ease, you can help them to understand what a Wells notice really means. Um, but I will say that despite uh, me having uh, defended many of these, this time it actually is different. The SEC of today is very different than, uh, than the SEC of four or five years ago. Um, the, the way in which they engage with the public is different. Um, but I will say that at the end of the day, that all mostly doesn't matter. It's different every time. What matters is the confidence that you can inspire in your client and the, and that doesn't come from just sheer force of will. That really does come from experience. It comes from experience. Uh, it comes from the experience of not knowing that you're going to succeed. It comes from the experience of knowing that even if you don't, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay in instilling that in your client. That's, that's, that's the hardest thing to do because I think a lot of people do panic. 
And unfortunately, a lot of regulators, uh, a, a lot of lawyers train their entire career to train their entire career. They rather, they are trained their entire career to believe that if the SEC ever gets involved, you failed as a lawyer. That is absolutely not the case in new and burgeoning industries. If the SEC or a federal regulator never gets involved, you might not be trying hard enough. It depends on the circumstance, right? When, when there's abundant precedent and you advise your client contrary to that precedent, you're probably not doing the right thing as a lawyer. But when there's very little precedent and you advise your client on where you think the perimeter is, well, that's your job. That's what you want to do. You want to educate your client and, and help them to understand how far they can really push without breaking the law. That's a, that is a delicate dance that, frankly, I, I, could, I, I could talk about how to choreograph uh, for another hour. Um, but I think it's important that young, that young lawyers really do appreciate that, that, that when the, it's easy to talk about the then they fight you stage, um, when you actually get into it, it doesn't feel like Gandhi's at your side. <laughs> it's actually, it's, it's actually a pretty, um, it's actually a pretty harrowing, a, a pretty harrowing experience for your clients. But that's, it's really interesting to hear you say, you know, hearing from the SEC does not mean you've failed. Uh, it's, it's good lawyering. It's funny. I have a buddy who works primarily on uh, bankruptcies, uh, a lawyer, um, but specifically in like the sports betting space and crypto. And just like us, just like Stacey and I say, I mean, it's never boring. You know, if you're in this space, it's always interesting. Um, great stuff, Marco. Really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. That's our show today. Thanks for listening. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to GM wherever you podcast. And if you head to our website, decrypt.co, you can find the full videos of every interview with every guest. Finally, we have a Telegram room for our loyal GM listeners. The address is t.me slash GM podcast. If you pop in there, you can get direct access to the co-hosts. You can suggest future guests, submit comments, and ask questions. It's t.me slash GM podcast. GM. GM.